I'm Pamela Bailey, the host of the Antebellum Diaspora Project podcast, where we're finding our families separated by slavery and telling the stories of our ancestors. Today's guest is Donya Williams. Donya is an author and an award-winning genealogist, and she is the co-host of the Genealogy Adventure Show, along with Brian Sheffy. I became acquainted with Donya in an Edgeville, South Carolina online genealogy group. While we have not been able to find a direct ancestral link, Danya and I share at least half a dozen cousins in the DNA matching website, GEDmatch. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so I've been waiting for this for a long time. I'm going to tell my audience, and I'm a little embarrassed to even show the book because some uh, books are dog-eared, but... <laughs> well, you when got I, it all. <laughs> I, listen... When I got the book, um, I was really intrigued, actually, when I saw the cover of the book, because one of the things that intrigued me was that you have the various names of people in Edgefield, uh, surnames that you were related to. You yes. Know. Yeah. And so as I went through that list, I'm telling you, including Williams, I can find so many names that are on that book cover that are also branches of my family as well. And so again, I wanted to know more about your story. You have a very specific story, a very interesting story. And as I've shared previously, what I like specifically about your book is that you don't only talk about the stories and the people that you met, but you tell us how you have arrived at making the decision to pursue genealogy and what that road looked like for you. Because I think for a lot of beginners, they may think that, you know, you start finding information online and it's going to be a straight path. And it is never that. Never that. Can you tell me a little bit about how you started getting interested in your family history in the first place? Um. Well, I got interested in my family history because my of my grandfather's or my mom's last name, which is Yeldell, Y-E-L-D-E-L-L. Uh, that was back in 1996. And um, I thought it would be easy, you know, because his last name was so rare. And I thought, okay, well, you know, this would be easy to to do, but I, I didn't do it. When I first got interested, I was more interested in the fact that to find out how many descendants my grandparents had. Mm -hmm. And and that's what was my first count. My, and so I counted my family and my immediate family is humongous. And I didn't realize that not everybody has a family like mine until I started doing that. And I'm like, wait, everybody don't have seven aunts and, and or six aunts and six uncles. I do. Mm -hmm. Or I did. They can most of them have passed on now. But like I do. And then all of them, I, I have almost 70 first cousins. Everybody doesn't have that. Yeah. See, so I'm like, I, I never realized that until I started counting. But when I when I made my count, I ended up with I think the number was 330. It might have been 400 just my grandparents' children's and, and their children's children, so on, just them. That's who it is. It's, that 400 is all descendants of my grandparents. So, uh, but I am really interested in why you decided to actually start to count because that's really curious. Okay, so the reason why I counted is because I had one aunt who had nine children and what basically what happened was my aunt was having um they were having this whole i think it was her birthday and it was five generations 
And I was like, five generations in one, all living at the same time? That's a lot. You know, yeah. I'm thinking that's just this whole big thing. That's great. And I asked my mother and I was like, mom, um, how many children does your sister have? She said, who are you talking about? And I'm like, Aunt Lula, how many sisters? Now, how many children does Aunt Lula have? She was like, I don't know, call her, ask her. So Aunt Lula wasn't somebody you just called and asked, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was one of those. So you had to be, I'm like, come on, lady. You know, I'm telling my mother, come on, I need you to help me out here. So all three of us called, one, we all got on a call together and my mom was talking to her for a little while. And then she just up and said, hey, um, my nickname is Papoose. And she was like, Papoose want to, ask you something. And I'm like, okay, look, how many, how many children you got? She said, Deed, I don't know. I said, Alula, how many, you know? So anyway, they began to count and they counted. She had nine children, um, 24 grandchildren, 42 great grandchildren. And uh, I think at that time it was about four great, great because it's, it's five generations and that's what it has to go to. And she, when they count, it was almost a hundred people wow. in her family by herself. So that's what made me count because I'm like, hold up. If this one woman who is my direct aunt has almost a hundred people in her family, good Lord, how big are we? And that's what made me find out that I actually had 70 cousins, first cousins, and that, you know, my me having six aunts and six uncles was just not, that wasn't normal. That wasn't a regular thing all the time, you know, right now. Maybe back then, but mm-hmm. right now it wasn't. And now I, I understand why it's a big deal for me, but yeah. Okay. Now, um, I understand that you spent actually a lot of your time, your childhood, sort of in the Virginia um, and D.C. and Maryland areas. So did you get to visit in Edgefield much at all when you were a child? Not at all. I didn't visit Edgefield until I was an adult. Really? Mm -hmm. And so do you have... And I was on my own. Okay, so were there, were without, you know, being too personal, but were there reasons that your mother just did not want to go back? And, and I do understand that she, like a lot of other people, sort of migrated um, to the North, you know, for better jobs, better opportunities during Jim Crow, but were there particular reasons that she, you know, just didn't, you know, take you all back? She knew nothing of Edgefield. My mom was born in D.C. So my grandparents were born in Edgefield, and they had six children in Edgefield. The seventh child was born in Asheville, North Carolina, and then they had seven more in D.C. So I'll, I'll go back to the Edgefield question because I want to know what it was like when you visited for the first time. Um, but what I'm going to ask you right now, because I also see in the book, you started the book by talking about the history of the Carolinas. Yes. So um, I want to know uh, why specifically you wanted to include that information in the book. Um, let, let's start right there. But I do think it was important to add. Well, okay. The, first, let me say this. The book was originally a chapter in somebody else's book. <laughs> okay. Um, and it ended up not working out with that group. And then it became three chapters in another group. And then it didn't work in that group. 
And my cousin, Sheila, God rest her soul. Um, I told her this story about my mom knowing Aretha Franklin and actually singing with her oh, at wow. church. And, you know, they almost to the point where, according to my mother, they would kind of battle because my mom couldn't really sing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Aretha had actually asked my mother to be one of her background singers and my grandfather wouldn't allow it to happen. Mm-hmm. So I told Sheila that story. And when I told her that story, she was like, you, you need to write that book. You need to just do it yourself and you need to write the whole book and just tell your journey. So that's how the journey of me, that's how me talking about the book, that's how the book came to pass. But as far as the, the first chapter, the first chapter had to happen because you needed to understand how Edgefield was created, where it came from, um, all of those different things in order to understand the rest of the stuff that I talked about in the book, whether it be about John Yeldale, Moses Williams, the Petersons, whatever it is, you had to know where they were because it, it allowed me to, to really talk about where how our families split, how they got separated, all of those things. I started to understand it better once I understood how South Carolina was actually created. Uh, That's true. And so even when um, just understanding, like you were saying, in my county, trying to research my own family's history, I had to go back and read the history because, you know, some of the places that are there now were not there prior to the Civil War. Exactly. So I'm glad again, I felt that your book was very instructional um, and it will be to people who are going to read this book, but I think it's important to understand that there is going to be more research involved beyond just family history, but to know the places that they might have been and that they don't exist, some don't exist any longer, or to see how newer places, the places that exist now were formed out of other counties and all of that is instructional. It's very, very helpful and important for people who want to go down this along this journey to know. Um, yeah. So I'm glad that you included that in the book. But now, were you interested in history generally? Um, I always liked history, even when I was in school, even as a kid. I always liked history, but it it wasn't exciting. It's exciting now. Like mm-hmm. I, I I absolutely love it now because it's all filled in. Um, I've always said that it was something missing and now I know what it was that's missing and that was the rest of the story. They only gave, they only give you, they only teach you part of the story in school. So you don't know everything. So it's kind of boring and, or it can be boring. And then, you know, as an African-American sitting in school and you're sitting there and you're learning about the history of America, you don't know where you fit. At just people of color in general, you're not sure where you fit because everybody is white. Now, I, I'm i straightforward, Pam. So mm-hmm. I, I try to, you know, I'm not trying to be offensive to anyone, but the overall, everyone that you learn about in school is white. So you don't go into all of the information like you should. And it looks as if America was formed by just white people. And that's not true. It's not true. And um, I don't think that it's offensive, you know, to be truthful. And I share that, you know, that has been my experience. Like, I can't even believe how much I love history now. You know, didn't yeah. love it. 
child because, or even, you know, an older student didn't love it because I couldn't find myself in it. Like I was, I would hear through family stories about some of the amazing things that my family had done, but there was no documentation. Yeah. There was no documentation. And so what you is is an experience that I can certainly relate to. And I think even to this day, and I understand that things have gotten better to a large degree, um, but still a whole lot more work that needs to be done in the classrooms, because this is not something that we that needs to happen for um, Black children. It needs to happen for all American children yes. who need to know the history. Yes. And so um, it's just really important. And I, I love that you are sharing that too, because again, it makes me understand that it wasn't a singular experience. Um, and it's not that the other things that we learned were not important, but they were not complete. And in some cases, not even truthful. Most mm-hmm. definitely. And um, also it's just like, you just made a really good point about it shouldn't, it's not just for African-American students, it's for all of them because then they start to see the, you you gain a certain type of respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, lived, I lived in Virginia Beach and my school was probably the closest to being 50-50, white and black. But there were other schools that were not like that in Virginia Beach because it was Virginia Beach. And um. I had a great principal who really worked to make sure that we worked together, that we loved each other, that we, you know, all of that. And, and I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm happy about that. But when I was sitting in history class and they started talking about slavery, all the white kids looked at all the black kids. Right. Because that was all they knew about us. That was it. And that was all that we knew. And now as I do my research and I'm learning that the abolitionist that we learned about, Charles Sumner, was beat by the man who actually enslaved my great great grandmother, and that he is possible, and more than likely, he's my three times great uncle. The event that Danya is describing is the brutal attack on Massachusetts Senator and abolitionist Charles Sumner by South Carolina Representative Preston Brooks in the Senate chamber after Sumner's remarks during the Kansas-Nebraska debate in 1856. Preston Brooks was also a slaveholder and Danya has DNA connections to his family. Now, how would I, how would I have felt as a kid in school learning that? How would I, would, that means that you've now placed me in straight into history, straight mm-hmm. into a part of history that you actually talk about. Right. Because they talk about the abolitionist Charles Sumner, but they don't talk about the man that beat him. They don't even say his name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what come to find out, he's a he's considered a son of South Carolina during that time period. So, yeah. And I'm like, well, how would I have felt? You just pushed me into real life history. Right. So now I have a I have a, a play. I have a space. And it made a difference. It makes a difference now, but it would have made so much, you know, it would have been so much more different later. It really would have. So um, I, as I understand that most of this history and information that you found out about your family was really, you know, through your own discovery. So, um, and you've got amazing family. I even look at, you know, just some of the, um, the institutions, the churches and things that they were established. 
And, you know, you would not have known some of these things had you not done the research and learned for yourself. So I want to know, um, did you not have much conversation with your family or your mom or aunties or uncles prior to making, you know, this journey uh, of discovery about your family and the things that they had historically? They didn't know. Wow. Everything that's written in that book, I found out. They didn't, the majority, they didn't know. They didn't even know their grandparents' names. Oh. So, and it makes sense now because of, so here's the thing. Um, I am not just, I don't just have 70 first cousins. I'm the last one. I'm the 70th. So <laughs> after me, it's great-grandchildren for my grandparents. Now, my grandparents were born in 1898 and 1894. I'm not 50 yet, but I have family members that were born in the 1800s. So this is why things were so weird for me that I'm like, I got all these people most of my most of my cousins are old enough to be my parents wow my cousins i have grand i have first cousins who are old enough to be my grandparents wow my mom is 33 years older than me so because i was had so late for her everybody's older than me all of the cousins that I grew up with are actually my first cousins one generation down or one were once removed. But those of, I grew up with my first cousin's children. Wow. That's who I grew up with. I didn't grow up technically with my first cousins because they're all, they were all older than me. My own sister and brother, my older sister and older brother, the oldest ones, they are old enough to be my parents because one was 17 and one was 16. So technically they're old enough to be my parents because my grandparents were born in, like I said, 1894 and 1898. Their parents were born at the very end of slavery in 1865 and 1867. How rewarding has it been for you to be able to literally give your family back their ancestral family with names and dates and those kinds of things? I'm gonna be honest with you and say, I don't know. Because my family is not interested. My mom is interested. She likes it. She 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 listens, you know, but she's mommy. So mm -hmm. it's what mommies do. Um, my sister, she listens. I barely have the attention of even my children for it. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's rewarding for them. It's rewarding for me. And, and, and I'm able to do that. And I'm able to know now that I know and then, and then the other thing is, is that a lot of, they don't realize, and, and I'm quite sure you'll understand what I'm getting ready to say. They don't realize that when you do research like this for people, especially for people that you've never met, you get to know them. Right. You get to know who they are to the point where you feel like you grew up with them yeah. mm -hmm. to a certain degree. So you know, I, I, this was my way of getting to know my grandparents. And now not only do I know my grandparents, but I've gone further. I know all eight of my um, great grandparents and almost all 16 of my two-time great grandparents. You know, I'm, I'm close with them. I'm close with my fourth great grandfather. I, you know, even though he irritates my soul, but I, you know, I, <laughs> That was Moses. That's the one with the mm -hmm. 40, yeah, all the kids. Mm -hmm. 
but uh, yeah, you know, I, I know them. I know them now. And my family don't, they don't know them. As someone who does this kind of work that everybody doesn't initially have an appreciation for it, I will say, number one, most people who do family history and genealogy um, always say that they are the ones who were called to do the work. Yep. And, you know, nobody, you know, around them very often has that calling. But I do believe that that work has been purposed because it may not even be in this generation, but they're yep. going to others behind you who are going to want to know you know I understand that you know this history is hard I just you know did a, a tweet this morning where I was talking about sometimes when I find these documents and I, I learn this history and I see the things that are written about my family and a few of my family members are in various you know history books I it makes me incredibly sad like I'm excited to know them um, it does feel personal. It makes me very proud of who they were, um, but it's also very sad. But when people don't know their history or the greatness that they come from, and again, when I say greatness, I don't mean that everybody ends up being a lawyer, doctor, you know, whatever, but to understand the amount of strength mm. that it took to endure the things that they face on a daily basis, mm. you know, and to be able to come up out of that and see someone like a Danya you know, be a result of that, um, it, they, I feel like people just really miss out on an opportunity to feel what we feel, which is a tremendous amount of pride. That's the, that goes back to that term, I'm not my ancestor. Good Lord, I would love to be my ancestor because if I was able to do what they did and still move forward, man, I, I feel bad about complaining about the stuff that I go through right now because they went through 10 times more stuff than I did and they still persevered and they still moved forward and they still created schools and became doctors, became lawyers, wrote books with senators and local government. Do you know? So for me, I've learned that in almost every generation of my family, there has been at least one politician and it still goes on today. And my family don't even realize that. It's DNA. You know, that call, that particular makeup, and I, I've seen it in my family as well. Um, but then you can almost go back and find who was that first person that voted during Reconstruction or who huh. was that that was involved politically. And again, just like some of us, some branches of the family will love art, some you know, branches of the family will love you know, cooking, whether they're professional chefs or whatever, but it's in the blood and it's important. It's, yeah. I think as a parent, I have two children of my own, that when I knew about my family and their interest in particular areas, and I mean my ancestral family for generations, that when these things popped up in my kids' desires, wanting to become artists and musicians and those kinds of things. I didn't think it's strange. And it gave me a reason to encourage it because I know it's a part of their makeup. It is a part of who they are. It's funny that you say that because I'm telling you the part that's going to bother people, what I'm getting ready to say is that you can see that in your white family members too. Mm -hmm. Oh yes. That's the oh, part yeah. that's going to bother people because I'm going to tell you, I am a descendant of the Brooks line. Now, Preston Brooks is the man that beat Charles Sumner on the Senate floor. We actually, I actually wrote about him in the book and finding him was an amazing find. Basically, I, as far as I'm concerned, my two-time great-grandmother, the one that he, it, that he was a slave, he enslaved, 
she was the one that pushed me to find him. If you as a researcher, Pamela, you find out that your family member is enslaved and she had three owners, mm. who are you gonna search first? Wow. I'm wow. asking you, who, who are you gonna search first? If you found out that somebody in your family had three owners, which one are you searching first? Which of the owners or who in general? Yeah, which one of those owners are you going to search first in order to find out more about her? I'm probably, I may start with that last owner for uh, many reasons. Uh, primarily, it could be because her name, if she's chosen, her family's chosen a last name, it may be with that last person that had enslaved her. I hope that was the right answer. <laughs> Actually, it is the right answer. That's what most people would do. But I didn't do that. I went to the middle. You would even you you would even look for the first or the last. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't start in the middle. She mm -hmm. kept pushing the name Preston. The name Preston just kept going in my head, and I'm like, okay, let me let me look up Preston. And I go and I Google Preston Brooks, and I find the photo that's in every history book today. Wow. Of him standing over Charles Sumner but they never said his name. They only said that Charles Sumner was being beat by a senator on the Senate floor because of his speech, the Kansas-Nebraska speech. Mm. That was it. So when I saw that, I was like, wait, wait a minute. I know this picture. It's a political, it's one of those political pictures. If you Google it right now, you would be able to see it. You would know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And you're like, I saw that picture when I was in school. I remember that she literally, she was like, okay, what you're going to do is not only are you going to learn about me, but you're going to learn about the families that you came from. Right. You need to All do of, that. All, All of, of them. Mm -hmm. Black, white, Native American, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. And she guided me and she did that. And so when she did that and I'm sitting here and I'm looking and the next thing I realized, I'm reading all of his works and the things that he did. He was very loved because of what he did to, um, to Charles Sumner. And like you said, the thing about DNA, uh, you know, because people are taking these DNA tests and they find out all kinds of things. It's important to be said that you cannot discount where the DNA comes from and the attributes that are going to live in you as a result yeah. of the DNA. So. Yeah. Um, like it's a very, very real thing. And so that's a very good point. And again, you, um, you know, you won't be able to deny that. And again, it's, it just is what it is. And it will be interesting. Um, I think it's always interesting to when you find people on the other side of this history to sh who share that DNA, you know, to be able to talk to them and to find out what things you actually do have in common as well. It is. I have so, not been able to talk to any of the Brooks line. They... They're not open. Uh, I think that kind of uh, loyalty to um, uh, a family, uh, to an incomplete family or history that is not true um, is, is a little sad because one of the things that people can do, they can't fix you know, what happened in the past, but one of the things that they can do in terms of you know, helping us to find my family, our families, which is what my podcast is about, you know, reconnecting with family um, as a result of doing this kind of work is being able to talk about this and provide documents. I mean, the thing is, is that, don't get me wrong, so I'm not in touch with 
people who are directly connected to Preston Brooks and so on and so forth. But there are other white family members that I am very close with. Um, I can, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm close to a lot of them and, mm -hmm. and I'm proud of that and I'm happy about that. But in the same instance, yes, there are some that just don't wanna do, they wanna believe in that incomplete history like you put it. But also remember, Pam, there are some that can't take it. Mm -hmm. They can't, they can't even, even though we've gone through what we, our families have gone through what they've gone through. As, as genealogists, it is my opinion that we also need to acknowledge what they've gone through too, as mm -hmm. being a slave owner. Right. So, and then finding that. Can you imagine finding out that your family owned people and you're living in this day and age? Mm -hmm. They can't, they can't deal with that. They're like, oh no, because I know I've met several white people when the first time, first thing they come out their mouth, oh, my family was too poor to own slaves. Well, first of all, you didn't have to be rich to own a <laughs> to, to own an enslaved person. Let's be, let's be clear on that. But okay, you know, that's that's how you're looking at it. But in the same instance, I, I actually kind of feel for them. And I get people mad all the time because I do. They're like, why are you caring about how they feel? Well, because I'm, I got a heart and, and I'm, I'm not going to, you know, it's who I am. So yeah, you have to, you have to really understand what everybody went through in order for you to understand that day and age and what happened and what went on. That way you'll be able to best handle it and be able to have that conversation. But right. if they're not, if they don't want to have that conversation, that means that they don't understand it. That's true. And, uh, you know, it is so important for people like you and I um, to help people understand none of us that are here today are responsible for the things that happened in the past. That's We're right. Not and when we are trying to get to this history and to know our ancestral families and reconnect our families, you know, shame is probably one of the most useless emotions that there is. Mm. So, and I understand how people feel. Um, I will say that I've only met a few people and, a, and a, a gentleman who's a good friend of mine that we've met through shared ancestry, uh, shared history. Um, he genuinely didn't know you know, because his family moved out West and never talked about it. And, you know, it was later in his life that he discovered this and he immediately shared it with his family. But I was the first, um, you know, African-American person that he, you know, shared that information with. So I understand that for some people that it can, on the other side of this history, it can be very, very difficult. But as you said, I would challenge them to understand the difficulties that we have faced um, as a result of everything that's happened um, and to be willing to overcome whatever, you know, trepidation or, you know, anxiousness that they're feeling about it. And even if they don't contact us directly to make sure that they are making documents available. And so for many of them who are only finding out since they're doing their um, genealogy, you know, that this was the case for them, you know, be okay 
with whomever is doing that um, research on your behalf. And I know that there, you and I both know people out there who are doing this, who say, I will do this genealogy work for you. But what I also do is I want to be a part of restoring family history black, back to African-Americans who are descended from the enslaved people that your family enslaved. So that is one way um, to contribute to us, again, finding our families because commonly just across you know this country there's so many people who do not realize the extent of how um, enslaved people who were born in this country and our families were separated generationally they don't know that um, there's a misnomer that you know when they moved the whole family you know moved you know or were sold together and that just didn't happen and so Again, we got to take that shame out of having the conversations about it. You know, people are entitled to their feelings. I can understand taking time to sort of reconcile what they're learning when it's very new to them. But there comes a point in time that, you know, we have to move past it because, you know, we have a responsibility when we have this kind of information and we know this history and how that history has affected other people. I totally agree with you. I had a conversation with one guy because um, right when we wrote, when I wrote the book, and one of the things that my Brian actually helped me do, he helped market the book. And so one of the things he did was he would write things as one of the characters in the book. And he wrote one for Martha, Martha Brooks. Mm-hmm. And um, it was so powerful that you felt like she was speaking. It was very powerful what he said. And it really angered a lot of folks. And one guy just came up there and did the normal. Why are you worried about this? You're not a slave. You, nobody you knew was enslaved and so on and so forth. And he went, Brian went to erase it. And um, I said, no, we need to know how to talk about this. So I responded to the guy and I said, "Um, you have children? He said, yeah, I, I got children. What does that have to do with you doing this? And I'm like, well, just let me get there. You, do they know their grandparents? Yes, they know their grandparents. I said, what about their great-grandparents? Do they know them? No, not directly. I said, but you talk about them, right? You, you talk about them and, and, and you learned about your great-grandparents and you share that, am I correct? Of course I do. I said, then why can't I? Mm. And when I did that, I made her human at that point. And right. that's, the, that's the problem. She, she's now a human being. And he's looking at me like, Oh, dang, that is all she's doing is talking about her family. I could talk about mine. Why can't she talk about hers? But you have to have a mindset. You have to be open to hear that Mm -hmm. because you got some people that's just not even open to hearing that. But if they're open to hearing that, then they're open to learn more. And And he actually apologized later. He was like, it it never dawned on. He was like, it never even dawned on me that that was actually what you were doing was just simply talking about your family. Your family. Yeah. And and so again, it's shame. And and again, it's because the way that our history was included, whenever it was, you know, the few times it was included in American history, our family were one-dimensional characters. Yes. And the only thing they ever did was work for a slave master. But That's again, it. we say again and again, they loved their children. They loved their spouses. They laughed. 
They had weddings on the plantation. No, it wasn't the most ideal situation, but they were three-dimensional people. They hunted, they fished, they had friendships and bonds. And even when some of the people in their community were sold away, they took those children into their families. Say that again. Yes, that's exactly yes. what they did. They did. So these are humans who love and feel. And so we have to be very careful not to reduce our ancestral families back into those one dimensional characters because it's not representative of them. You know, I don't care. People can say, you know, all day long, we can read the documents where slaveholders considered our families to be three quarters of a human, but they were 100% human with the same feelings. Yep. that we have right now, yep. they never changed. And so we've got to restore them back to that. And so, um, like I said, so I'm glad that you had the opportunity to address that. And, and even if it's just one person that you got to help see things more clearly. It because, makes it better. Yeah, because this, this history, this information should never, ever, ever be forgotten. Um, it's not something that we will quote unquote move on from because it is so important to American history. Yes. Um, but maybe we can talk about it differently and respectfully, you know, you know, through doing this work and by people like yourself being an example of how to do that. You say some things in this book um, that are very familiar to me. And again, so, uh, I'm from South Carolina and these are things that I've heard. So to hear that your family was in the DMV area and sort of talking about these things and using some of the same terminology was very interesting to me. So I want you to tell us a little bit about the story about um, Aunt Margaret. And you talk about Aunt Margaret's handprint. And we're gonna be talking a little bit about what some people would say is supernatural, but this language has been in our families forever because I can remember my mother talking about Hanks. And um, that is specifically an idea um, that comes through, um, you know, West African culture into the Carolinas and still, you know, is spoken about today. Can you talk about that? My Aunt Margaret. So <laughs> I was a kid, but what you're talking about, I was a teenager actually. And um, my mom, we had, we had moved to Virginia Beach. Uh, we moved into a second house and there was, a, I think it was Hurricane Camille, I think. It was Hurricane Camille. So everything had to be moved upstairs because, you know, my mother's scared of water. And yet she moved to Virginia Beach. So she was like, everything got to come upstairs. You know, she's all nervous and everything. So we we do that. And, and uh, you know, we do that. And we're in her room and we're talking to her and everything. And she's looking around and looking up, look, just looking around. And I'm like, mom, what, what are you looking for? She said, I felt, I felt my sister because her, she had died. My aunt Margaret had died when I was like 10 years old. Mm -hmm. um, and she was like, I, I felt my sister and I'm, I'm, I asked her to leave me a sign. And I'm trying to see if she did. So she looking around, looking around. And she looked up into the ceiling and said, there it is. And it was my aunt's handprint. Thin, slim bone, bony hands. And it's just bam, right into the ceiling. I left. I left the room because <laughs> back then I was afraid. I was afraid of all of those different, all anything like that. I, you did not see me staying around. I wasn't going to stay. And I stayed that way until I started researching. 
Mm-hmm. And I started researching in 96. So I, it wasn't until I became an adult and I had my, my first encounter through my daughter, which was also a story of Aunt Margaret, um, when she introduced herself to my daughter. And through, it was after that, then I'm like, okay, y'all coming for me, let me, let me do this. You know, but it went differently. God was like, okay, you're not gonna go through the ghosts. So let me introduce you to genealogy through living people. And that's when my research kicked in. Wow, that is so amazing. That's so yeah, amazing. I couldn't, I couldn't do the ghosts at yeah. first. <laughs> and even though, you know, again, my family in South Carolina as well, very, very religious people, but they understood or they felt that, um, you know, the spirit world was, and this is not, you know, about evil or devils or anything like that, but they felt there was a very thin veil between life and death. Yes. And um, it wasn't something that was incredibly scary for them. You know, there were always these stories around. And I'll just say this, um, I can remember And it's a common story now um, uh, with a lot of people who have lost parents. But I can remember about a month before my mother passed away that she had an experience and I was at the hospital with her. And I'd heard about this kind of thing. I had a friend who was a hospice nurse, but never, ever had I expected to experience it. And so that evening that I was with her and she was asleep and, um, you know, she would wake up in the middle of the night and be looking around the room. And that night that I sat with her, she called the name of every single uh, one of her siblings, like one at a time, you know, on the hour, like clockwork, they, you know, she would sit, sit up and say, you know, I'm calling for this one, or she was calling for that one. And we never even talked about it, but all of the names that she called were the dead relatives. Now at that time, she had four other living relatives who were coming to see her on a regular basis, but not one did she call during that encounter. And so for me, um, you know, after that, she started telling me that she was ready to go home, that she was prepared, you know, to leave us. And she wanted to see her mom and her siblings again. And um, it was very hard for me to talk about. And, And, you know, because again, it was quite an experience, but even knowing that many people wouldn't even believe or understand that that happened but I knew that she would not live long after that. Like she literally was preparing to go to see her family. And so I do understand it. Yeah, um, my mom had that same experience with her brother and how he actually saw all of his brothers and they, he was the last one to pass. And he told her they had come to get her. He, they were like standing in the corner. You know, my Aunt Margaret, she introduced me to it, but I couldn't. I wasn't ready then. And and then the fact that she, because when she introduced me through my daughter, that's what really kind of freaked me out. Because like I said, my aunt died when I was 10. My daughter was not thought of. I didn't have my daughter until I was 21. And she was three years old. So I was 24. And she introduced herself to my daughter. Because my daughter's standing there and just talking. This is actually a story in the book. Mm -hmm. And she's standing there and just talking to this lady at the window. And I looked and I'm like, who who are you talking to, little girl? Who are you talking to? This lady, Ma, she's so funny. And my daughter is extremely, extremely intelligent. She graduated at 16 years old, speaks fluent Italian. She's extremely intelligent. 
So at three, she was speaking just like I'm talking to you now. She's like that. And actually she was correcting people's English sometimes, but nevertheless, she was like, lady standing at the window, mom, she's funny. What lady standing at the window? Ain't nobody standing at the window. Meanwhile, I'm putting on my shoes. Cause I'm like, who's standing in my window and we need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. And she's constantly talking to this lady. And I'm like, something just inside of me said, ask who the lady is. And I said, well, did the lady tell you the name, Alexis? Claire's day, my daughter looked at the window. She said, my mommy said, what's your name? Daughter looked back at me. She said, mommy, she said, her name is Margaret. I said, you need to tell Margaret go to the light. Because <laughs> what we're not going to do is, no, this, this is not, <laughs> this is not what this is not happening. Tell me. And she said, my mommy said, you need to leave. And she said, she looked, and my daughter looked back at me. She said, mommy, she said, you're funny. I said, oh, okay, let's go. And we went upstairs because my sister lived over top of me. And I called my mother and I immediately told my mom, hey, yo, lady, you need to get your family because <laughs> they are in the house and this is not, this not wow. going to work. And I told her the story and she just laughed. Wow. She just laughed. But yeah, that's how, that's how I was introduced to the spirit world and it wasn't going to work. And so God was like, okay, let me do it this way. Let me do it another way. Okay. And that's how they did it. Yeah. <laughs> You talk about people along the way that have been very, very helpful to you. So I want to talk a little bit about Candace Wellman and how you met Candace. Okay, so Candace Wellman is a Yaledale. She's a white Yaledale. And when I first met Candace, it was in a um, ancestry on the message boards because I was really trying to do that research on my Yaledale family. And she answered and responded. And, and we were talking back and forth. And then finally, I told her, I was like, well, I'm black. Let me, let me be clear, you know. I just told her, she said, okay, I'm white. And we just formed this relationship. And she was actually the first person that was really kind of guiding me as far as researching is concerned. Um, the research portion, not what my aunt did introducing me. My aunt introduced me to it, but the research portion was really done by Candace. And mm-hmm. she was telling me things that I can look for, things that, that um, may be helpful towards me, for me, and all of that. And she gave me all this history about the white Yaledales and then turned around and said, but I want you to find it yourself. Mm. She was like, this is, what, this is what I found. This is what I know. I'll give you guidance toward it, but I need for you to verify it yourself. And Candace is, that's my, that's my buddy. No, <laughs> she th- actually ended up coming here. Her and her, they came and her son, and they met the black Yaledales, met the white Yaledales. And she gave all this history and talked about the White Yaledale farm. And it was at that point that I learned that the White Yaledales in South Carolina were not like the rest of the, a lot of the white people in South Carolina because they actually gave their enslaved people trades, not just anything. They were blacksmiths and carpenters and seamstress. And then they taught them how to read and how to write. But most importantly, when one of them died, there is no such thing as a slave graveyard. 
they buried them beside them. Wow. Yeah. So, and that wasn't something that was done, yeah. in, especially in Edgefield, specifically mm-hmm. in Edgefield, that was not done. Mm-hmm. So, right. Yeah. And you're right. Because, I mean, a lot of them, uh, even today, are in uh, unmarked graves. Unmarked. Yeah, people are using technology like LIDAR and other kinds of, um, you know, uh, technology to discover, you know, that these were unmarked graves with bodies of enslaved people underneath. So that is very unusual. And they also, there's only one stone that's sitting on that, on that Yaledale farm, and that is the stone of William and Mary, which were the, the enslavers. But everybody else that's there, no one has a stone, white or black. Mm. No one has a stone. They keep that grass cut low, and it's but it's white and black. It's a white and black cemetery. Wow. In Edgefield during the 1800s. You can't, you know, that's crazy. That's amazing. That's amazing. So um now your mom took the DNA test. Um, how was yeah. she about taking that DNA test? Did she have any apprehension about taking a DNA test at all? Mm-mm. And so did you find anything in particular that was like shocking or amazing or different for you? Um, yes. And, and it said that her grandfather was mm-hmm. a Native American. She has, she has about one to 2% Native American DNA. So if that's her grandfather, she should have way more mm-hmm. DNA than that, Native American DNA than that. So I don't know if he was actually, I, right. I don't, yeah, I don't know where it came from. I know that all of her sisters had beautiful hair, including her. Um, and I know that all of the men, all of my uncles, well, actually all of them, as they get older, they get this blue ring right around their eye. Mm-hmm. Every last one of them. Now, somebody said that was a medical issue, but some of them didn't have this medical issue. That I can't remember what they said the medical issue was, but all of them didn't have that same medical issue. But the older they got, the bluer that ring became. So wow. my mom has a blue ring around her eye, like right around the um, the cirrus, I think that's called, the, the mm-hmm. black part of her eye, right mm-hmm. around the black part of her eyeball. She she has a blue ring and it gets deeper and deeper blue. Now, is that specifically for the, um, the black family or does the white family have that trait as well? I have no idea. I just know from my, because I'm, the Yodel family is a very, even though the name is rare, it's a very hard family to research. And I think it's because of John Geldio in the book. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> it's a very, very hard family to research. They disappear after two census records. Not just one person, whole families. Wow. wow. And, yeah. Not just, and it's not just the Black families, white families. They disappear. They're gone. After two census records, if you don't know where they are, you that's that. They're gone. That is very interesting. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I put them on punishment. <laughs> so, 
So listen, I, I learned a few things in the book. Um, I wanted to talk about the slave schedules because I shared that, you know, I've seen my own family uh, on slave schedules and I didn't realize the significance of those. Can you um, tell our um, viewers and listeners what the slave schedules represented? Well, I mean, the slave schedules are when you, they count your family, they, they count those who were enslaved. But what was great, and I think what you're talking about is that in 18, they, they only had two, 1850 and 1860. So a lot of people need to understand that when the census first came out from 1790 to 1840, the only people that were listed was head of house. Mm -hmm. And anybody else was, it was a check number how many black people was in your house, whether they were enslaved or not, how many white people were in the house, whether they you know, were male or female. Um, that was how the census records were broken down. By 1850, they started putting names on there. So that's as early as free people of color were started to be listed because they were listed on the 1850 census. But in order for them to count, in order for them for tax purposes, they began to count the enslaved. And that's how the slave schedules came about. In South Carolina, and I don't know if it's like this for others, but in South Carolina, the 1850 slave schedule, they were done as if they had family, it would run in order. So whoever was the oldest to the youngest, that's, that was how it was. It would be male, female, however many children and their ages from mm -hmm. the oldest to the youngest. That was amazing to me because I was trying to find Martha, my two times great grandmother. What was great about it by 1860, they just did it in order. That was it. You So you don't know whose family or not, but Whitfield Brooks, which was the first person that enslaved um, Martha, Preston's father and presumably um, Martha's grandfather. Uh, he his slave schedule was done right before he died. Um, his slave schedule was done right before he died, and he died in 1850. Mm -hmm. So the 1850 schedule was written, and because it was written the way that it was, he had um, I believe 92 enslaved people. He was a he was a planner. He was definitely a planner. And he had 92 enslaved people. And I thought to myself, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. If he has 92 enslaved people, I might can get their names. Because slave schedules don't have the person's name. They only have their gender and their age. Well, there was a book that was written in Edgefield called The Slave Records of Edgefield County, South Carolina. And come and find out, the person that wrote it is also my cousin. She's a Lucas. Gloria Ramsey Lucas, because she ended up popping up on my mom's DNA. So I, how she's related, I don't know. I just know that she's related. And she took, this book contains all of the enslaved people in Edgefield, their names, going in with she, years, she would go in wheels and probate records, land records, anything that was naming these people inventory sheets and she was writing it down well because she did that and she looked at Whitfield's inventory sheet and listed all of his enslaved people the exact amount of people 
that he that was listed on his inventory was the same amount that was listed on that slave schedule with no names. So I was able to pick them wow. out from, from his slave schedule and I could match it. So now I have the names of everybody who's on his slave schedule. Wow. Which is something that a lot of people are unable to get. Right. But that's how I ended up finding not only Martha, but her parents, her siblings, um, something that I never thought that I would find because she was enslaved. So I was like, oh, I'm never going to find who her parents are. Mm-hmm. And I have it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you about two of your family members. And if you can just give us a little bit of information about them, because again, the book, um, it shares that information and it's really important for people to know. Of course, we cannot talk about you, your family in this book without talking about Moses Williams. So can you tell me just a little bit about what makes Moses so special? Um, what makes Moses so special is that he had 45 children, 40 girls, five boys, two women. That's what makes him so special. Um, Not just that, and the fact that he was born in 1769, he died in 1884, so he was 115 years old when he died. And when you think about that, he was born before the American Revolution. He Mm -hmm. saw it, and he saw every war in between it. Wow. So everything, he saw everything. He saw the changing of pants. He saw the changing of how money was. He He saw everything. And he saw the beginning of the Civil War. He saw the ending of the Civil War. He saw everything. And he was 115 years old with 45 40 girls, five boys, two women. One woman had 22. The other had 23. That's amazing. That is amazing. Okay. And then I want you to tell me a little bit about the famous Yaledale trial. Can you talk a little bit about that? So John Yeldell is my grandfather's third cousin. And um, basically, it was, it, it was just like Tulsa. It was a riot that formed over a political issue. And um, John was accused of killing someone. And he escaped. He got away. The actual thing happened in 1884, but they found him in 1889 and a famous trial happened because when they found him, he was somebody else. He had changed his whole persona. Um, his name was now Reverend Elijah Fleming. Fleming. Uh, he did not assume the John Yeldale name. And they had to fight to get him. They had to fight to get the trial. They had to fight. Everything was a fight. And that fight included, the, almost included the president. Definitely included senators governors of both South Carolina and um, Pennsylvania. Uh, He had armed guards protecting him. Mind you, this is a black man being protected in 1889 by a whole bunch of white men. How did you feel about that? You know, (laughs) and um, this story was just an an amazing story. It's an amazing story. Wow. And it's not an ending that you guys think it is. So I, I won't say it. But it, it's it's a movie. I don't know about you, Pam, but when you was reading, because for me, I was ready to have some popcorn. <laughs> I, 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 I think I said that in the book. I was like, where's my popcorn? Because this, this was amazing. It was an amazing story. And just to give you guys something else, don't disregard newspapers. 
because right. that's where it was. It was over 500 articles about him wow. in the newspaper. And he was considered by the New York Times the most talked up colored man in the land, more popular than Frederick Douglass when this was going on. Wow, that is amazing history to be a part of. That's why I strongly encourage people um, to definitely consider finding family. So I'm gonna ask you the final question, just any advice that you would give. Now you just gave that good piece of advice about you know, um, you know, looking at newspapers, like considering all the sources, but um, it takes a lot to do this kind of work. Um, and but we know that it can be a very healing process, you know, as you work through it and finding your family. But for someone who might have this interest and they don't know where to get started, how would you advise them? Talking to family, I think, would be the first thing that I would say, you know, see what information they have. Some may help you, some may not, um, but just get as much information as you can. Follow the, you know, definitely look check census records and things like that. So understand how census records are done. Um, understand the county, the place that your, your family came from and know that what it was like you said before, the name of the county back then may not have been, may not be the name of the county right now. Um, a lot of people in my in my area, they talk about McCormick County. Well, McCormick County was the last county to be formed in that area of South Carolina, and it was formed from everything else. So you can't say that stuff happened in 1880 for McCormick County when McCormick County was formed in 1917. It's little stuff like that, you know, be and pay attention. God, pay attention to everything. I mean, every little thing. I'm still looking at census records and finding something that I had not seen. And I've been researching for 25 years. Wow. So I just found today my grandfather's sister. No, not today. A couple of days ago, my grandfather's sister actually had 12 children. I only have nine. On the things so I'm like, oh God, so there's three more kids I need to find. And yeah, but I just found that from one of the newly released birth certificates that the late birth certificates that they're putting out. So read everything. You have to read every single thing. Well, as they say, the ancestors are found when they're ready to be found. So yeah, that's why my Yale Dells are on punishment. I don't mess with them until they're ready. I hear you. It yeah. has been. Such a pleasure and a delight to have you um, be here on the show today. And I just, again, just appreciate all the work that you have done. It is inspirational. And um, it sounds like you're not going to stop. You're going to keep on going until you find those yell dells. Um, <laughs> I'm going to keep going. <laughs> I'm going to keep going. I can't stop. It's addictive. I hear you. Thank you so very much. And again, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you.